And I suddenly realized that there's no big secret. People think that the next level is a level that you're excluded from because there's a secret to it that you don't know about, or there's something in you that doesn't quite fit. None of that's true. None of that's true. If you ask questions, you'll find the answer. Hello, how are you doing? Welcome back to the Spiritual Psychology of Acting podcast. We hope you've had a lovely summer break. We're very excited to start sharing the second season of the podcast and we are kicking things off with a bang as we bring you a conversation with the incredibly talented Eddie Marsan. One of the busiest and most versatile actors working in the industry today, Eddie really needs no introduction. Over the course of the last 25 years or so, he has appeared in over 130 films, not including a nine-year stint in the States playing Terry in the Showtime television series Ray Donovan. Most recently, Eddie has given brilliant performances in last year's The Thief, His Wife and the Canoe, and this year in the Amazon Prime show The Power, based on the best-selling book by Naomi Alderman. At the beginning of his career, Eddie also trained with John in many of the same principles that make up the spiritual psychology of acting today. So Eddie was kind enough to come to John's house to record the podcast a few weeks ago and do listen all the way to the end to hear about an exciting opportunity where you can study the course for free. A quick side note, we had some technical difficulties at the beginning of the recording with Eddie and John's audio, but it does improve around the 8 minute mark. Aside from that, we very much hope you enjoy this chat with the wonderful Eddie Marsan. Well, here we are, season two of the podcast. It's good to see you again, John. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Had a nice break. Ready and raring to go. Very nice. Excited to start the, uh, the new batch of episodes. Yeah, and Eddie was number one on our hit list for guests, so it's fantastic that we've got Eddie. We've got um, him. <laughs> we've got him by the balls. <laughs> I'm standing, sitting so close. <laughs> well, there we go. He's already been introduced. How are you doing today, Eddie Marzan? Very well, Jordan. How are you? Yeah, great, thanks. Lovely to have you with us. I think a good place to start then would be your relationship with acting. So when did you first get the itch? How did, when did you first get into acting? Um, I used to do plays at school, uh, but it wasn't as serious things like anybody at school doing plays. Um, my family history has no history of, of acting or theatre within the family. My dad was a lorry driver. My mum was an assistant to a primary school teacher. My nan was a cleaner. And um, But what happened was when I was about uh, 18, I was dancing in a club in Hackney. Uh, Trevor Nelson was playing. He's playing a club called Greys, and I was dancing in a club with my friend Emmanuel. And someone came up and asked us to be extras in the film because we were quite good dancers. So we went on this film and uh, film set to be extras. And I saw a, a guy who's now a friend of mine, Jamie Foreman, and he did a scene where he had to walk across the dance floor uh, holding a, a bag of money or something. And I saw it and I thought, God, that's what I want to do. I want to be an actor. I was an apprentice printer at the time. And I was, and I, I finished my apprenticeship about a year later, but I wanted to be an actor from that point on. And I tried for years to get into drama school, all the drama schools, all over the place. No, I didn't get into any of them. And then gradually, Mountview Theatre School offered me an evening course, which I did. And then I did the full time course, 
And when I did the full-time course, I met a man called Sam Cogan, who was a teacher with John and teacher with me. And then um, Sam left Mount View and set up his own academy. And I met John at that academy. And then I started to study with John rather than Sam. And I studied with John for about seven years, wasn't it? Yeah, seven was years. Really? Seven. Wow. Yeah. And so, yeah. and so, at what point in your career was that? Was that before you'd really done any film or TV? It was just theatre. I wasn't. Um, well, I did. I didn't get a, a, a paid job for about five years after leaving drama school. So I used to do fringe plays all over London. And but I was so dedicated to learning how to, how to act. I, I kind of decided that's what I want to do. So I would go and do these fringe plays and go back and study with John. And 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 John is also great in teaching meditation and, and a kind of philosophical and spiritual aspect to it, so which which helped me greatly. So uh it kind of kept me going really for seven years. I remember going to see you in plays at the Greenwich People's Theatre. Yes, yeah. And I remember you did a small you did quite a small part, and then you did another one you had like medium sized. Yeah. And I know that you gave your when you're in the play, you get you gave your everything to it. Yes. But then they gave you a lead part, a yes. Montanus. Yes. I yes. remember coming to see you. Yes. You were yes. really good. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that helped you, didn't it? Because then you got seen for serving it up. Yeah, the the bush. Yeah. 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 So but yeah, it was uh, you know, it, it's what I always tell drama students. You've got no control over whether you get job. you all, all you've got control is is whether you're excellent. And excellent, one of them, what I mean by excellence is whether you give 100%. If you give 100%, something will always come back. I'm not sure how it will come back. I'm not sure in what way. It may be in unexpected ways, but it will come back. Yeah. And service as well, because, you know, you, you built that up from doing a small part. You did. You gave your all to that. They gave you a bigger part, and then they gave you a bigger part, and then people saw you. You got the um, audition for serving it up. Yeah. And then it's serving it up. Went to the national. They went to the national, yeah. So because I think like virtually every casting director in London went to see Seven Arts. Yeah, you know, they did. It was a they really did. hot show, and you were great in that. Yeah, but, it, but it, even at Mountview, when I was at, when I was at drama school, I wasn't the leading man. So um, they used to call me Captain Velcro at Mountview because I played all the small parts. So whenever you heard Velcro, it was always Eddie doing a quick change because I was with <laughs> the tea and then play, play the copper and play something else. I was always the small parts. All the good-looking posh boys were playing the leads, you know, like in the checkoff. You know, someone was going to shoot himself. It was this really good-looking boy. I was always like Udi Nick the other Bolikov who came up the end. Came up the end and gave a summary, but never really had anything meaningful to say. I remember actually in class one day, you coming in and going, "I got the national." Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, we were doing a class. We we hired a room at the Actors Centre. Yes. We did. And uh, you came and I got the national. And I think that's your, that's where your break started, wasn't it? Yeah, I told my dad I got the national. He thought I was working at the horse race. <laughs> <laughs> so were your parents quite accepting of you deciding to be an actor if it wasn't really their, their world at all? Well, I, I used to work for a bookmaker in the East End from about the age of 16. And I worked for him up to about the age of 26. So I used to make, earn money when I wasn't acting, working in, in his in menswear shop. And um, he, him and my mother, his name was Mr. Bennett, they got together and they paid for me to, to go to drama school because I never got a grant. So they paid the fees. So he was like 
a major benefactor in my life, major influence in my life. So he paid for me to go to drama school. Oh, amazing. I met him, actually. I met Mr. Bennett. Yes, you did. At your stag do. Yeah, yeah. He he had my stag stag do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, really nice. Yeah, yeah. He was my best man. wedding. Well, he had a stroke the night before. That's a long story. But, um, yeah, but he was like my best friend. Like, it was kind of like my father figure, really. Yeah. So he made it possible for you. Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what are the key things then you, you said you studied with John for seven years. That's quite a, quite a time. What were the key things that you learned from John that you still hold on to, to this day? Well, we, we studied initially together a very, very strict Stanislavski method. Um, but what it needed was, um, in hindsight now, what I realized that it needed was we needed to be free. And there was a lot of self-punishment and um, um, the, the purpose to be right and to be perfect, which is the, the opposite of good acting. And what I learned from John, we used to have this, this teacher, Sam Cogan, and he used to say, the worst thing an actor can do is want to belong. So everyone used to walk around trying not to belong and, and, and get themselves up nervous breakdowns about it. And now I remember John once said to me, finished off my thinking about it when he said to me, well, we do belong because we're human beings. And it was a different way of thinking about it. It, was a, it wasn't such a violent, belligerent way of thinking about it. It was a very compassionate way, passion for myself through meditation. And then when you combine those two things together, the idea of purposes and events and actions and life events and self-images, the way that you can hold them and, and create a character is by compassion for yourself and freedom allows you to, to hold those thoughts easily. You can't do it yeah. through strain. You can't do it through self-punishment. So that was what I learned through John was a combination of meditation and the ability to be free and relaxed when you're acting. Yeah. Amazing. It's funny that you say that I kind of feel like I've got the same things from John. It's that your, your teaching has kind of gone over throughout the years and it still maintains that the core principle, which is how do you just get everything else out of the way and, and just simply act well? I definitely have I've had the purpose to be right and to be perfect throughout my acting, and it has crippled me at times. You can't possibly do a good performance. You can't. I, I, I now, if, if I go in and talk to drama students now, the way I tell them about being a professional actor, the difference between a professional actor and a and a an actor who's just starting out is I would say to them that as if, if, if you're playing a character that has to walk on and put a cup of tea on the table, that's all you have to do on stage. An inexperienced actor will want to hold the purpose that the character has. Maybe I want, maybe I want to be loved, I want to belong or whatever. And they'll walk on stage and then they will realise they're being watched by 500 people and they will have the thought, oh, fuck, I'm being watched by 500 people. And then they will have the thought, oh, fuck, I'm thinking oh, I want to be watched by 500 people. And then they will think, oh, fuck, I'm thinking this and I'm thinking, and they, and, they, and, and they get themselves tied up in knots. So by the time they put the tea on the table, it's they've completely lost the character. Yeah. And the difference between that and an experienced actor, an experienced actor will walk on, hold the purpose of the character and have a thought I'm being watched by 500 people and then saying, fuck it. And that's yeah. it. That's all it is, is you forgive yourself. And if you yeah. forgive yourself, the thoughts come and go. They're like the weather. They, don't, they only exist if you, if you give them importance, if you chase them. Don't chase them. They'll come, they'll come and they'll go. And I think 
you've got four seconds before it becomes a, you you have a physiological result of the thought. So you can think something for four seconds, and if, and if you allow it to come and go within that four seconds, you won't miss it. And the audience won't pick up on that as well, will they? Yeah. So relax. Don't punish yourself. Yeah, that relaxed approach. I uh, back then in those times, something that really influenced me, which still holds really true with the, with the teaching I do today, was I read a book by Louise Hay called "You Can Heal Your Life." It was the first ever. I'd always read psychology. And it was the first kind of spiritual book I'd read. And this woman had um, cured herself of vaginal cancer. And it was all due to self-compassion. And what she had done was she'd found repressed memories of of child abuse and she'd rejected her own vagina. And so that's where where she said that she thought the cancer had come from. And through a practice of self-love, She'd managed to cure herself. And there's something she said in her book, which really resonated. It was just what I needed to hear after having trained with Sam. It was so different to Sam. She said the ultimate at the bottom line of everybody's problem is self-rejection. And that the natural relationship that a person to have with their own self is a relationship of love, not love in the sort of narcissistic, you know, standing in front of the mirror saying who's a pretty boy then, but just um, <laughs> but, but uh, love and compassion for yourself. So I think that's what you're referring to, that that was what was quite markedly different from the science of acting to when you came to study with me. And I noticed the differences in my performance. My performance level went up. And right. suddenly I work that I was doing because I wasn't obsessed I used to work very hard but it wasn't getting wasted with self-punishment and suddenly it was bearing fruit because I was I was in a good state of mind well all that energy yeah. I guess that you would direct towards yourself like flagellating yourself can then just be directed towards the character right like radical compassion for yourself yeah so John what was what was Eddie like as a student then if you cast your mind Eddie- back well, I, I remember it like it was yesterday, actually. I mean, because you came to class for quite a long time. The things that were, that were remarkable was that always, you know, Jordan, at the beginning of my class, one of the first things I do after we've done a little bit of meditation is I ask, has anyone got any questions? And uh, very often there's a sort of a deathly silence and there's no, and it's like, what, really? What, we've covered all this sort of knowledge about the human psyche and this spiritual philosophy and all, all of this, looking at creating characters, and there's no questions. Eddie would always have at least one question. He'd go, yeah, I've got questions. So what about this? Um, And so that was really remarkable. And then secondarily, when I, the other thing I would do is when I'd give them a piece of homework, they'd come back to class with a piece of, they'd worked on an exercise on their own and then they were going to present it in front of the group. And I'd go, right, so who wants to go first? And then very often people would, you know, normally in class, People sort of look down, look at their feet, or they start writing a note, or they are trying to avoid my eye contact because they don't want to get up there. And as soon as I would say, right, who wants to go first? Eddie was straight up there. Always the first person to get up and say, right, I want to show show my work because I want to learn. And then he would do the exercise and he'd really want to find out the notes. There was no, he, he didn't want you to tell him he was great. I thought I was great anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely wanted to know, how, what did you think? How was that? Did you believe it? Did you, you know, did you believe it? And if anything, I'd say um, with Eddie as an actor, 
was he he always went for it and if anything he had to learn to just trust that thinking the character's thoughts were enough that he's got a really expressive face and really expressive eyes you know his thoughts are written all over his face eddie <laughs> so he doesn't so just thinking it is enough so there was a slight theatricality that perhaps he'd got from drama school where he would like have the character's thought and then push it a little bit to make sure the audience could see it whereas in the class he learned to just that that the character's thought was enough and if you know if you've got it that the audience will see it yeah it's one of the things i learned that if you're thinking it they'll see they'll think it yeah that's yeah. all you need to do yeah and it's great for film and TV acting, I guess, as well, isn't it? It's, that's well, what you I'm, need. Is because the... We were just talking about that, the difference, because I haven't done theatre for 22 years. Right, yeah. On film and television, it works perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's time you did a play. <laughs> <laughs> Coax you back thing, onto the boards. The other thing I was going to say that uh, I think is useful for people to hear, and I, and I, I share this with, with other groups, you know, since you've trained, I, I always I sort of tell this as a, a story to inspire them, that when you did the homecoming at the National, you invited me and then another girl who was in your class, Marianne, you invited mm. us to come and watch a matinee. Yeah. And we went... You know, we we turned up early and you gave us a little guided tour backstage. Uh, went to see your dressing room. And I remember that you had a bed in your dressing room. And I was really like, wow, that's a, he's really made a bed. <laughs> and then you, ha- you had a bathroom as well. And we were sitting, me, you and Marianne were sitting on the bed chatting. And Marianne said to you, I don't know if you remember this, but she said, Eddie, you've been in John's class and we've been in John's class. And how come this is happening for you? God, what I say? Yeah, well, no, what you said was really interesting. And you looked at her as if, like, there was a secret that she hadn't learned. And you said, because I never expected anything different. Yeah, that is true. I kind of... um, when I look back now, I think it was because it was a necessity. If I look back from my childhood, my parents had a very difficult marriage and, and with, with um, subsequent therapy, I've realized that, that one of the reasons why I was so dedicated to acting was because it, it, it was a kind of survival instinct. I, I had nothing else to do. It was a form of therapy, really, and, and understanding the world. And and I never doubted that that um, that that I could do it because I always thought well because I left school at fifteen with no qualifications I had no academic well, no academic points of reference I could either give up or say well if they can do it I can do it and that's what I always thought there's no big secret to this it's just thoughts there was something that we used to we used to tell ourselves which was complexity is just multiple simplicity and that's what we used to think and so I always held that thought in my head that, that if they can do it I can do it and that's why I think if I can do it, you can do it you can't have that thought and be hypocritical you know it had you have to pass it back so one of the reasons I always believe because I always there's part of me that is a slightly a fighter in a sense do you know what I mean not in a bad yeah. sense in the, but this that, that perseveres 
Yeah. And I always thought, as long as you keep asking questions and keep finding out, there's an answer to this somewhere. And that's what makes a career, right? That's that's why you're able to have a career because, you know, you're going to survive any knockbacks. You're going to survive any criticism because it doesn't mean anything to you, right? Because it's it's not going to reach that initial purpose that you had. No, no. I mean, some criticism is is uh, useful if 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 people are giving you something that you need to learn from. The, un- the thing about the universe is whatever your weakness is as an actor, um, mine was my voice and, and the fact that I sounded like I came from a council estate and when I was at Mountview, they said that I wouldn't have a career because I couldn't, I wasn't versatile. So in a mm-hmm. sense, that was the universe saying to me, this is what you need to work on. If you want to fulfill your dream, this weakness here is what you need to work on. So in a sense, your weakness is your gift. Well, it's ironic, really, because I think you're one of the most versatile actors in the country. Given yeah. given the parts you've played, it's such a variety of parts that you've played. You've totally proved that wrong, haven't you? But that's why, I think, because I was determined to prove it wrong. Right. Do you understand yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. They're, they were saying to me something that I had to be aware of, you know. I could yeah. have become this, like, East End working class hero, ducker and diver, you know, and I decided not, I decided that I wanted to be Alec Guinness. You know, you know what I'm I wanted yeah. to be a versatile actor. I wanted to prove, part of it was to prove them wrong, but part of it was because I wanted a long career. And I realised yeah. that in order to have a long career, you have to make sure that, that as many different people as possible have a different idea of you. Yeah. yeah. And that, but that, that belief that for you to say, I never expected anything different, meant that and you didn't it wasn't arrogant when you said it it was just like well don't you get it and it's like this was my purpose yeah. I, I imagined this and i went for it and so this is why this result has happened i had a i had a a few years after that i did gangs of new york with uh martin scorsese career-wise it was wasn't a very good film for me because i got cut and i ended up with two lines after nine months work but as an actor, to learn from being on that set was brilliant because one of the one of the amazing things that happened on that set, we had a one scene in a Chinese brothel that they had to shoot for two weeks, and Scor- Martin Scorsese walked on with his DOP director of photography, the cameraman, and 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 all his team, and stood in the middle of two hundred people, and he looked around, and he said, "I don't know what to do." And I remember being there thinking, wow, that's a really brave thing to say. You know, you are, you're Martin Scorsese, you're an Oscar winning director. We all think, you know, you're God's gift to directing. And here you are, you stand in front of everybody and you say, I don't know what to do. And, and I suddenly realized that there's no big secret. There's no, there's no, you know, people think that the next level is a level that you're excluded from because there's a secret to it that you don't know about or there's something in you that doesn't quite fit none of that's true none of that's true it's only that the, if you ask questions you'll find the answer and, and, and when marty did that it really made me i thought it's okay to not know and then i remember reading the Tao Te ching and there was something in the Tao Te ching when lao tzu said ignorance is a human condition accept your ignorance be comfortable with ignorance because ignorance is is, is will show you what questions to ask. Don't um, celebrate ignorance. Don't don't stay in ignorance, but accept your ignorance, and then you and ask questions from that place. It's like that idea as well, isn't it? That 
for so many people, happiness is always around the corner. It's always in this next thing I'm yeah. going to try and achieve. And definitely for me, I feel like I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life because I realize, no, it's every day is like, you know, it's a decision yeah. to be happy. And it's, it's been happy with what you've got and being grateful and not in a sense of just accepting a lot, you know, it's, it's, it's okay to strive for it for the next thing. But it's, it's that idea of like any job I do now is always like, this is, this is the moment. It's not for the next job. It's not for how this job's yeah. going to turn out. It's like, be present now, be here now and enjoy this. And yeah. That can yeah. spill over into every day, I think as well for your, your personal life. Well, that's the big myth, isn't it? That happiness is something in the future. <laughs> I suppose that, you know, when you get to our age, you realise that that's past. <laughs> no, but we we live in this idea that there's some kind of big picnic somewhere in the future. And then I suppose as you get older, you realise that that's not true. And it's actually now. So now is the happiest time of your life, meaning the present moment. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. then you'll miss it. Exactly. Yeah. If you're too busy thinking about what's coming out, you'll, you'll miss it. And then you live with the regret of not being present. You live with the regret of missing out on certain, certain life situations. Definitely. And those memories that you reminisce, you know, they were the good old days. It just meant in those days you were present. Yeah. Yeah. So you've, you've played loads of real life people in your career. I think the last few projects you've done have all been real life people, right? Yes. The last ones yes. you filmed. Do you approach those parts differently than you do for purely fictional characters? Or is the process just the exact same? No, it's, it's, it's the same. It's the same. I mean, it's it's the same process because ultimately you have to serve the writing. So whatever whatever version of that real life person the writer has has decided to uh, put on the page to create the function, then you have to serve that because you can't turn up as as an actor to a writer and say, "Well, I I don't think he'd do that. I think he'd do that." You know, I'm a great believer that you have to have. You have to give a respect to the writers and serve them. That's all. That's always what I do. I mean, I've just played Mitch Winehouse in Back to Black, and all it, meet, getting to know Mitch, becoming friends with Mitch, sharing family stories with him, was just great research. Really, ultimately, it's just research. It's the same as if you were watching videos of someone or reading books about someone, sitting down having a coffee with them is the same thing. It's just I don't really feel any more pressure because you ultimately have to serve the writer. So you're creating a character that's in the, in the film. Yes. Which is really, but it's, it can't be the totality of everything that Mitch is. No. It's, it's, he has a function within that. Yeah. The, his character the, the has main, a function. As, as an actor now, I realise the main job, one of the main jobs of an actor is to work out what the function is of the character and then hide that function, fulfil that function, but hide it. Everything should be seen, but nothing should be shown. Well, any great biopic as well, you know, all the worst ones are the cradle to grave ones, which is, it includes everything in their life. It's like a, a living Wikipedia page, whereas the best one takes a, a chunk of their life. I, 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 they always do this thing where they kind of introduce famous characters through exposition. Like if you're introducing, like you're doing a jazz biop and someone says, What's your name? And he says, Quincy Jones, you're on. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what do you think has been the biggest obstacle you faced in your career at any point in your life? What, what was the thing that stands out for being a, a real moment that you overcame something and learned, learned a lot from it? The biggest obstacle was the class system. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I, I, 
two things. I suffered from class prejudice, but I benefited from white privilege, if I'm honest. I, I, I had a friend of mine, uh, Benny Wong was a friend of mine, who now is in the Marvel movies and things. Yeah. And we both started out as actors together. Um, Benny's um, opportunities were limited because he's of Chinese descent and there wasn't many Chinese parts. And mine were limited because people only ever wanted me to play drug dealers and bank robbers and muggers and whatever. Now, I could go and what I decided to do in order to overcome that, I, 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 I couldn't sit around and wait for the the industry to create diverse stories about people from my culture and my class. I had to become diverse in order to have a career. So I had to become many different types of people. So I, I, I would go and see a voice coach and work with voice coaches all the time and movement coaches, and I could change the way people perceived me. Now, Benny couldn't. Because he was always going to be, no matter what he did, he was always going to be an actor of Chinese descent. So, so in a sense, I was in a more privileged position from him because of the color of my skin. But I was overcoming class prejudice. And that's the thing that I've always had to overcome. And it's very interesting that I had to go to America to overcome it. I had to go and do Ray Donovan for nine years and overcome it. Because what's, I'll tell you what's interesting about America. America has lots of faults. It's a very, there's a lots of inequality in America. It's, it's a meritocracy, but it's an, um, in many ways, it's an unforgiving meritocracy. So if you, if you fall through the net, you're, you're just going to starve to death. And it's, it's nothing that I would wish for this country. No social health care or anything like that. But the narrative of America is anyone can become anything. The narrative in this country is know your place. That's why. This country isn't a religious country, but but the the coronation was a religious ceremony. It was a religious ceremony reaffirming the class system, right? Now, and what's very interesting as being an actor, quite often you deal with in this industry very, very left-wing filmmakers and progressive filmmakers who you would think wouldn't give any credence to the class system. But what's very interesting is they still embrace identity politics and narratives so quite often as a working class actor one of the things you have to overcome is progressive but privileged filmmakers deciding who you are there's a big there's a very interesting debate in this country at the moment about whether actors should play things that they're not yeah because some people for some reason people get it confused with the idea of um availability to professions for people in, in minority now i can understand if people are disabled I can understand that because that that's that's the extreme. That's a limit, and and they should be they should play disabled parts. And even you should cast put characters in things who aren't written as disabled, but they are disabled. Because in life, you know, you go to work and there's you've got a disabled mate. You didn't expect him to be disabled, but he just is, and that's it. We just you know what I mean. We have to yeah. broaden broaden our um, experiences and 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 availability in that way. But one of the problems is that. In order to, if, well, if you come from a privileged background in this country, you can be mediocre and you can still have a career. If you come from an underprivileged background, through class, through color, through religion, you have to be exceptional to have a career. And how can young underprivileged actors, actors of color, actors, working class actors, how can they become exceptional if 
they're being told they can only be one thing. They can't be exceptional. Diversity is the only way they can be exceptional. Mm-hmm. And what's very interesting in this country is that that even progressive filmmakers, they buy into this idea of you, you are who I say you are. And the danger is that they don't know who we are. I came from Beth McGreen, but John knew who I was because he was teaching me to meditate and I was studying for seven years. But if I went into a if I went into an audition, some Oxford educated, even left-wing progressive filmmaker would have a very, very fixed prejudicial idea of me. He, his narrative will be, I, this is someone I want to rescue. I didn't need him to rescue me. Just give me the job and shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it reminds me of, I remember Idris Elba saying that very early on in his career, you know, he was trying to get to that place where it, it wasn't just the the character was black. It was just that there, there's the character description. There was no description of color yeah. in it at all. It was just this is the character he's going to play. That's not a part of it. Exactly. You know, acting at the end of the day is using your imagination. You have what's to be free point, in that. What's the point of giving a young man say say you got a young kid from Stratton whose 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 parents were born in this country, but his grandparents from Nigeria. So he's of Nigerian descent. Now and he wants to be an actor, right? What's the point of giving him a scholarship to go to drama school and to become an actor. And then when he becomes an actor and graduates, you then say, but you can only play kids of Nigerian descent from Australia. Then uh, are you going to wait for the industry to start writing a hundred different scripts about uh, that represent the diversity in those people, the multiple stories about people from, from um, of Nigerian descent from Australia? That kid's going to wait there until this, community suddenly sorts itself out or are you going to encourage that kid to have his own volition and play a nigerian kid of nigerian descent from Stratton and then play hamlet and then play do a check off that's the way you empower them one of the problems with this in, in industry is very well-meaning directors they and producers and casting directors what they do they live in a narrative they live in a world where there's villains and victims right the victim, the villains are the establishment or the right wing or the or or, or or the upper classes, and the victims are the working classes, the underprivileged, the people of color. But the heroes are them. So it's a narcissistic exercise. But people of color, people of class, and people from minorities don't see it like that. I don't see that person as being my hero. I'm my hero. So they don't want to empower people. What they want to do is they want to rescue them so that they can go to a dinner party at BAFTA and say, did you see what I did? Yeah. And it's a very, very different thing. They've got, they've got to keep their narcissism in check. I'll probably get cancelled now. but. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. We really hope that you're enjoying it and you're learning lots from it. I just wanted to tell you that I'm doing a live workshop in London on the 15th and the 16th of September 2023. It's from 11 a.m. till 6 p.m. On those two days, it's a weekend. It's a Saturday and Sunday where if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been learning some of the information that we've been given, of course, for the information to become knowledge, we need to put it into practice. So here's your opportunity to come and put some of these things into practice and start developing your acting technique with the spiritual psychology of acting. 
go to the website where you can find out about all our courses, including the six modules. You can study now remotely the entire course through all the modules with all the exercises from the comfort of your own home. But if you wanted to get in the room and receive some personal guidance, you know where to come. All the very best. Bye. So out of the hundreds of characters that you've played over your career, are there any characters that you feel, or, or which character that you've played in the past has challenged you the most and it really pushed you out of your comfort zones? Any that come to mind? Um, I think one of the most exhausting was Scott in Happy Go Lucky. Really? Because, because I was just had to be angry with her, <laughs> basically. Based on Sam, our own <laughs> was it really? <laughs> it was into conspiracy theories, and I had to research conspiracy theories for a year before we before we we created the uh, the film. Yeah, so that was quite challenging in many ways. Terry Donovan was challenging in the sense that I had to keep the Parkinson's symptoms up all the time, all day long. As soon as I went yeah. on set. At lunch, I had to do it. Not be, you know, people talk about method and, and and they disparage it, and they. It's not what it basically means. You have to create something, an ongoing condition, so that you don't have to think about it when you're in the scene. You know, yeah. that's, that's which is a similar way to the way you create the character. Right, you're constantly just filling your your mind with pictures and impressions of that that character's life. It's the same kind yeah. of process, I guess, isn't it? But including the physical aspect. There is an aspect. There is there is a difficulty in playing someone who shakes a lot on film is that you have to ask where the end of frame is. Cause if you play someone who's shaking like this, it looks like <laughs> I'm masturbating. So you have to ask, I literally have to do things like that because then you have to see that you have to physically see the shape. If not, you look yeah. like you just play. Yeah. <laughs> I love that whole aspect though of, of, of filmmaking that you've got to make what feels in, the, in at that time and place feels a bit off and it feels a bit strange, but looks completely real on camera. Yeah. Looks, comp- I love like that little dance you kind of have to kind of create, yeah. especially when you see the finished thing, it just looks, oh, wow. Okay. There you go. The greatest I've ever seen, the greatest director for that is Spielberg. I, I did, uh, I did Warhols with him and he oh, dances yeah. with the camera, but he's brilliant at that. If you see any Spielberg film, every, every, every moment is telling the story. Every, not, not, nothing's wasted. Yeah, yeah, of what's in the frame. Yeah, but that in acting, that's the difference between the acting technique, which is creating the character and thinking the character's thoughts and letting it manifest yeah. itself through you, and performance technique, which is making sure everything can be seen and be yeah. heard. Whether that's in the frame of in a film, whether that's you know having your shake within yeah. the frame, yeah, or whether it's in the theatre, making sure the people at the back can hear you. That's performance technique. I, I never used to watch myself on the monitor because I used to be frightened of passive imagination. Because mm-hmm. I used to say, I don't want to, I don't want to watch myself because I don't want to I don't want to see what I'm doing. And I still don't watch myself unless the, the tape the scene is finished. But I was working on a film with Sean Penn and he asked me to and and he's directed me in a film as well. And uh, he he said to me, Come and look at the monitor. And I said, no, Sean, I don't, I don't look at the monitor. And he said, why not? I said, no, I'm not. He said, no, come and look at the monitor. And I stood there and I said, why, why are you making me look at the monitor? He said, because look at this. 
what do you want to convey and what's the least possible you can do to convey it? Then do that. Is Can you do less? If you can do less, do it. And that was a brilliant tip to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Look at it, look at it, and look at this. What do you want to convey? What's the least way you can convey it? The most efficient way of conveying it? Then do that. Nice. So in a sense, you have to take responsibility for the aesthetic. Ultimately, yeah. you know. It's got you to get, exist in the background, hasn't it? It's got, got to kind yeah. of just be yeah. there without interfering. Yeah, yeah. Something I wonder is, is how many of the directors, what percentage of the directors actually help you as an actor and they get into, you know, guiding you to create the character and that kind of work on helping you with your performance and what percentage of them are just about the coverage and the shots and they've just hired you because you know what you're doing. It depends. I mean, some, a lot, a lot, it's about, it's, I would say 75% are just the camera and the angle and, 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 and they will leave you alone to do your job. Right. Because they would just they would just decide on the shots and 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 um, although some of them are brilliant at coming in and like Mike Lee is brilliant at creating a character with you. right and some directors don't watch the monitor they sit and watch you act like like it was a theatre performance rather than film. Um, the best directors are the best directors are the ones who if they know that it's purely the aesthetic and the, and it's the way the shot is and 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 then they would. Allow the act, leave the actors alone and just do that. And or the or vice or the other way, the directors who come in and help the worst ones are the ones who don't know what they're doing. So they they do the aesthetic and they come in and tell you to do something. They give you a really passive note and you think, I can't, I can't do that. One of the worst, I had a director once on a, on a film and I was, I was on the Outer Hebrides in a boat coming in. I was playing a German rocket scientist and the director said to me, he, he was on a he was on a megaphone thing. He said, "Hey, and what, let me remember." He said, "You've been on a train four days. You've been in a, in the back of a lorry with sheep and and cattle, and and you're exhausted. You've been soaked. You've been exhausted. You haven't slept for four days. You're hungry. You're tired. You're exhausted. Okay, with energy." <laughs> so, um, but. Different directors. I mean, I could the whole thing. I could talk to the whole thing about film directing. The worst, the worst thing that a film director can do is set up shots that predicts what an actor will do. So they say, okay, you're going to sit there and this shot, and you're going to do that because, and if the actor does something slightly different or spontaneous, no, you can't do that because I'm fixed on this shot. So you basically start with the actors. The greatest directors, Spielberg, Mike Lee. They they know what shots they need, but they know they don't decide how they're going to get it until they see the, what the actors do. Because yeah. the worst thing you can do as a director is set up a shot and an actor does something slightly different, and then you've got to spend two hours changing the lighting to accommodate what the actor did. Well, the actor's supposed to do something spontaneous. That's what acting is. You create a subconscious and then let it spontaneously express itself. Yeah. It's understanding, I guess, it's collaboration, always collaboration, isn't it? You can't well, force anybody to do any kind of job. Even actors no. who say, oh, can you light me from this way? <laughs> it's, it's, it's getting no. in, it's, it's getting a collaborative in. and an interpretive art thing. Yeah. What's, they don't have then, so it's not storyboarded. They can storyboard it, but the worst thing is, is if you storyboard and then you say you're going to, in the scene, you're going to sit at that table all the way through the scene. And the actor goes, but 
I spontaneously wanted to get up. You know, that's the worst thing you can do, I think, as a director. What you need to do is you say you need to go to your DOP. I need a wide. I need two mid shots. I need to do over the shoulder. I need close ups. Okay, well, because what can happen is quite often with Mike Lee, Mike Lee and Dick Pope, who's a brilliant DOP, would discuss what they need and then come and watch a scene and go, actually, we can do that in one. There's a famous scene in Happy Go Lucky where Scott gives Poppy an introduction to the car. And that scene should have been Poppy's perspective, Scott's perspective. And Mike and, and, and Dick Pope watched it and they think, actually, we just need one shot here. The right. whole thing is just one shot. And you wouldn't do that until you saw what the actors did. Yeah. I mean, I guess conversely, you get people who, directors who want a big one shot that lasts like 10 minutes. And that has to be yeah. obviously incredibly choreographed. But then that can also then maybe get in the way of, does it actually need to be a one? Yeah, does it? Big long take. Off? Or are you showing off? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. So yeah. 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 The thing I like about film directing is that, that you have a plan. You know, so you know you've you've decided what you're going to do, but the plan is just that it's a plan. Yeah. And when you get there on the set, you're open to the new situation, and it evolves. And and like you say, you can you can like rather than you've got all these complicated changing shots, it's like you can just do it in a one and it looks much exactly. better. Exactly. I mean, the, the what the plan should represent is the questions you've asked, and if you've asked multiple questions, then you'll be more flexible. Yeah. If you have, an, if the plan represents questions you've been afraid to ask, or options you've, been, then you you're in trouble. Right. Yeah. So it, I mean, I've heard you say as well that you'd like to direct in the future. What have yeah. you learned from about directing from those directors who've also been actors, like Paddy Considine with Tyrannosaur and Sean Penn, like you say? What about directing with their approach? Do they bring anything that's that's different to? Those pure yeah. actors like Spielberg and Mike Lee. Yeah, allow the camera to 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 in a sense dance with the actors. Watch what the actors do, and then allow the characters to be informed by what they do. Don't tell them what they have to do, and then they inform the shot. Do you understand what I mean? You have to allow yeah. actors to do. It. Spielberg Spielberg does this all day long. Oh my god, we can do this. We can do this, and the producers going, "Oh my god, what's the time?" <laughs> I don't care. We can do that. We can. And that's what's brilliant. And that's wonderful. You know, yeah. you can't get something like Jaws. You can't get that spontaneity, that authenticity, without being, um, without allowing the camera to spontaneously dance with the with the actors on the on 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 the set. You couldn't do it. You literally couldn't do it. Yeah. Well, that's a great example, Jaws, as well, right? Because the you know, the the shark that they had was malfunctioning, so they had to show the shark less, and that's the genius yeah. move of that film. You don't see the shark for so long. It's adapting, yeah. isn't it? It's being, being able to improvise yeah. with it with what you've got. So, are there any type? I mean, you've like we've said before, you've played so many different types of roles over, the, over your career. Are there any types of roles left that you haven't explored yet that you'd like to in the future? Um, I don't know. Um, I'd like to do more comedy. I think. Right. Yeah. I'm naturally, um, I like a laugh, and, and 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 because I've got a face like a smacked ass, people don't cast me. <laughs> people, you know, usually playing someone who's horrible. But I quite like comedy. I like, I love me. I like, I love to dance. I got into acting through dance. I nearly did something recently where I was going to tap dance, play play a gay waiter tap dancing, but um, we couldn't we couldn't work the dates out. I was dying to do that. That would have been fascinating. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, something like that. And theatre, people ask me about theatre and whether to go back. They never used to offer me great parts in theatre in this country. So um, I, I will eventually, when I'm old enough, I think I'll go back and I'll maybe, I'll maybe do some Arthur Miller or something and play some great parts. But yeah. at the moment, but, but, but for years it was always, can you play the fool or can you play? <laughs> like, oh, shut up. I once had a director tell me, but there is no, he was doing a Shakespeare, and he said, there is no fool in this, in this play, but we want an amalgamation of all the working class characters and create a fool out of them and you play it. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so if you could go back then to your younger self, pre having this you know, amazing career that you've got this huge body of work, what advice would you give to your younger self? Anything that you could tell him that you know now that you didn't know back then? Yes, don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to admit that you don't know. Uh, I, I started off because I was the only, because I was the least educated person in 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 the rehearsal room. I still am in many ways, and because I was work, I was quite often the only working class person on set. Or I first tried to, to kind of duke it out. Is that the American term? I tried to, you know, I tried to be the tough guy, and and actually my career was going nowhere. And one day I decided to 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 swallow my pride and just ask for help. And people from with much better education than me just loved suddenly turned around and said, yeah, okay, let me explain this to you and this. And 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 and, and the, their kindness and generosity was amazing to sit down and explain things to me. So people want to help if you're prepared to ask for help. And also there's no such thing as a mistake. There's only lessons. There are no mistakes. There's only lessons. And you're always learning. Always be prepared to to learn. And that is being prepared to make a mistake. I think that's what I tell myself now. What character have you enjoyed playing the most at your career? Is there one that's particularly close to your heart that you feel like that the experience of playing the character was the most enjoyable to you? I think Terry Donovan, if I'm honest, yeah. uh, because we all became so invested in the family. And, and 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 we were like a family making it because we made it for nine years, seven seasons over nine years and a film. I, I, and also because it's the only part I've ever played that audiences have affection for. You know, right, they have, right, they, yeah. they kind of, they love Terry. I think he's a great character. I think he's somebody with a disability, but he's very brave. What was fascinating about playing Terry Donovan was that even though it was very alpha male, he was actually the mother of the family. So in a very Stanislavski sense, his germ was the mother, but even though it was this box and all that, and it was wonderful to play that juxtaposition as an actor. Complexities like that are a dream for actors, you know, to play, to, you know, Stanislavski once said, you're playing an old character, look for his youth, playing a young character, look for his age. It was like that, you know. It's a lovely job, right? No, I loved it. Yeah. Would you do that again, do you think? A job that is that Yeah. It was, it was a much more... Um, um, it was a much more creative process than I, I'd never done television before. And I thought, and I was kind of dreading that it was going to be very, um, by numbers, but actually what happens when you do something like Ray Donovan, the writers come down, the writers initially write this character, Terry Donovan, and then they come down and work with you for the first season. And then they get to know you and your strengths and your weaknesses. And they begin to write the character based on you. So the, I think the, the character who's closest to me, in life is Terry Donovan because the writers began to write based on my personality. 
Amazing. And what advice would you give to any young aspiring actors trying to make it into the profession today? I think we have a, um, we have a kind of um, approach in this country where you go to drama school and you spend 28 grand, 30 grand on training, and then you come out and you never have to study again. And what that does is it excludes a lot of actors from poorer backgrounds, underprivileged actors, because that the amount of money they have to spend um, means that the training is not accessible to them. And then, then the industry buys into that and excludes them because they, they think, well, you haven't trained. What John's course does brilliantly is it follows the American system where you work and you train at the same time. So you're always studying and always working. And there's nothing that you won't get from John's course that you'd get. In, um, it's basically just as valuable. I found it more valuable because it helped, especially when you combine it with the meditation and the philosophical approach, it helps you to deal with the ups and downs of the industry. And there's going to be lots of ups and downs. So um, we're actually creating a, a scholarship. Yeah, we've got a scholarship. This is new that Eddie's kindly agreed to back a student and pay for a scholarship for them to do the course, to do the recorded content. What, what people need to do is send uh, a piece of work, um, two, three minutes. It can be anything they like. Uh, it could be a self-tape that they've done. It could be anything. And they send it to info at spiritualpsychologyofacting.com and they put in the uh, title scholarship entrance it's going to be called the eddie marsden spiritual psychology of acting scholarship and then eddie's going to choose somebody and um eddie's going to see them through the course and kindly pay for them to do the course so that's a that's a new initiative that we're just discussing today actually just before this and that's a really great way to support because you know a lot of actors that you know like eddie was saying it's like it costs twenty eight thousand pounds to go to drama school and I've taught actors from all the different drama schools in the UK and most of the top ones in the in the United States as well. And they all say the same thing that it was it was we had fun, we made friends, we put on plays, but we never learned the nuts and bolts of great acting. We never learned, you know, what is a character, how do you create one, what's a systematic approach to doing it, what's the technique of an actor that they come away with something solid. So we want to be able to offer actors that at a much better rate so you know my course is um you know one and a half thousand pounds rather than twenty eight thousand pounds and you learn the real nuts and bolts of acting um while while also pursuing being in the industry one of the things this 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 country doesn't realize is that um employment is a is like the thin edge of education so you don't you don't you don't learn and go out there and, and you're a complete thing it's it's it doesn't work like that you know it's a very anarchic way of, of, of approaching acting in this country. I think. Mm. And you become somebody else's Mr. Bennett in the process. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Get ready to be best man at somebody's wedding. In a few years. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, that's it. It's also, you know, uh, supporting actors as well who can't necessarily go to drama school, don't have 28,000 pounds on. And also, you know, they get a student loan. And really, the last thing you want to be giving a young actor entering into the profession 
is a huge burden that they've got to pay that back. I mean, there, there are other professions where, you know, they're going to get a decent paid job. And I suppose that's reasonable that doing as a loan. But to put that burden on a young actor mm. must put off a lot of actors from going to do that, especially ones that aren't from a privileged background. Well, when, when I got into drama school, it was the final year before the, the fee course fees tripled. And so if I hadn't got in that year, I don't think I would have been an actor. Yeah, I think it would have put me off probably. Yeah, you know what you're saying? Yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. really important. So we want to make the, the training available for everybody. You know, there's not, it's the, it's maximum information, maximum technique uh, with minimum cost, essentially. That's, you know, what we would yeah. offer. Because you do need training. The thing is, it's a wonderful profession. And I do believe that actors need to train. But the way we do it in this country is 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 the wrong way around, I think. Yeah. And, and on, as you know, on my course, there's no fannying around in tights either. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you're paying the, the fees for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, going fannying you can around. Do that in your, you can do that in your own private time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't need to pay for the privilege. No. Well, thank you so much for your time, Eddie. It's been an incredible first guest for our, our second season. Is there anything we can see coming out soon, or is, is, is there things that are in the pipeline and things that you've just finished or what's coming out. I got, um, there's a film called firebrand, uh, with Jude Law playing Henry the eighth, uh, that, uh, and I'm playing Edward Seymour. That's just been at Cannes. There's a film called fair play. That's, that was, uh, that was a big hit in Sundance that's coming out in October. There's a, uh, a thing called the winter King, which is about what's his name? King Arthur. And I play his father. Did you meet Jordan Alexandra? She played Guinevere. I don't know. My, I don't have to do the scene with her. Maybe I did. I did I yeah, don't she's know. Guinevere. She's one. Of, she's a sports oh, really? psychology factor. Yeah, I, I, I coached her for that part. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. yeah, it's a good. It's a good show, and there's lo- there's loads of stuff. I mean, I'm, I mean, I, I, when does that come out? The Winter King. I think October. Right. October, and then there's a thing called Supercell, which Ratman directed about. Young black guys in in South London creating powers, and then there's a thing with Michael Douglas comes out in next February, I think. About he plays American. We both play American presidents, and then there's uh, oh, there's loads of things. There's back to black. Oh, I mean, I just I don't know. I'm exhausted just listening to that. (laughs) You're a busy, busy man. No, you're a busy, busy man. Thank you so much for your time, Eddie. It's been it's been really wonderful. That's a really interesting conversation. I've learned a lot just listening to that about your, yeah. your insight, the film industry, and just working as an actor. And um, you're a real pleasure to watch. You know, so, someone asked me in an interview once, you know, who's, who's your favourite actor? And I said, you know, am I allowed to say one of my own students? Because uh, really, you are, it's an absolute delight to see you whenever you come on the screen. And often it's, you come on telly just the other night with the... It's like, oh, here he, here he is again. Yeah. Like, here he goes again. And, but it's so diverse that you really prove that acting is uh, an art and a craft, you know, yeah. that you that if you're a good actor, you can create any character. And you really prove that. And it's really always wonderful to see you work. Well, because there is no such thing as, as the self, you know, as a fixed self. There's no, if there's no such thing as a fixed self, then how could someone say, well, you've got to be you? Who's me? I don't know. Me, me is me is interacting with everything else. It's, it's crazy. I've, I've yeah, had well, the pleasure of it. Uh, this has been a, a bit of an Eddie Benz last last week. Seen a lot of stuff that I hadn't seen before. 
I watched The Best of Men the other day. And, oh, that's beautiful. The and, best yeah, of men. lovely. And you're Bob Dylan as well and the Urban Myths. That was great. I hadn't seen that before. Yeah, with Paul Ritter. Who's, Paul Ritter was my favourite actor. Yeah, excellent. He was, yeah. Yeah, he was amazing. I think as well, like you've seen like you want to do more comedy. I think uh, The World's End, that's one of my favourite performances for me, I think. I yeah. think, you know, yeah. Peter Page is such a sweet, sweet soul. He's, uh, <laughs> he's hilarious. Yeah, it's so good. Definite, definite highlight in that film. More, more comedies for Eddie, please. <laughs> yeah, I remember early on doing a Cadbury's commercial. Yeah, that was really funny. That was funny. Yeah, that was like yeah. using your. And in class, you used to do comedy yeah, bits yeah, as well. So yeah. it'd be really good seeing you like in a in like a high farce or something like yeah, that. Just yeah. do something different. Yeah, I'd love yeah. to do that. You've been listening to the Spiritual Psychology of Acting podcast. Huge thanks again to Eddie for coming on the show and for his generosity in setting up the scholarship. If you're interested in applying for it, all the info for that can be found in the YouTube link, which is in the description of this podcast. But before we let you go this week, I'm pleased to say that we now have a patron page. We love making this podcast for you and we pour our heart and soul into every episode. We are absolutely committed to making sure this podcast is available to everyone for free, but producing and maintaining each episode does take a lot of time, effort and resources. So if you're enjoying this podcast and you feel like you're getting a lot out of the content, we'd love for you to consider becoming a patron of the show. Your donations will directly contribute to the growth and sustainability of the podcast, helping us to cover production costs, improve our reach and really enable us to keep bringing you great content and even more exciting guests. If you'd like to support us, head over to patreon.com forward slash the spiritual psychology of acting podcast. Whatever you can give each month is much appreciated. And as a member benefit, you'll receive a 15% discount on all spiritual psychology of acting course material. So for example, that's a saving of over £209 on the full course. And if you can't afford to give anything financially, that's no problem at all. There are plenty of ways to support the podcast by leaving us a five-star review or word of mouth, sharing episodes with your friends and family. It all makes a massive difference to us, so thank you. That is all for now. Join us again next week when we'll be covering the topic of emotions. Until then, take very good care of each other and we'll see you next time. Thank you to Charlie Robinson, she helps with the video editing and artwork for this podcast, and to Omid16b for providing the music. The track is called Love and is available on all streaming platforms. <laughs>